My name is Einat Wilf, and this is the We Should All Be Zionists podcast. Each week, I'll be reading one essay from my latest collection of essays book, We Should All Be Zionists, on issues facing the Jewish people and Israelis today, conflict, peace, religion, politics, past, present, and future. At the end, I'll be joined by columnist Blake Flayton for a discussion on the themes of the essay and how they apply to contemporary Israel and Jewish life. You can purchase your own copy of We Should All Be Zionists anywhere you get your books. Thanks for listening. Let's start. Constructive ambiguity has not worked. Peace needs constructive specificity. Essay for Fathom Journal, June 2017. From Ambiguity to Specificity I am going to reflect on something central to the thinking of many policymakers working to achieve peace. It is the notion that given the animosity, the distrust, and the competing understandings of history, the way to make peace is through constructive ambiguity. Shimon Peres, with whom I had a chance to work for a few years, used to say that in lovemaking, as in with peacemaking, you need to close your eyes. I'm not going to discuss people's preferences in the bedroom, but with respect to peacemaking, I think that this perspective is not very helpful. The idea that we can close our eyes a little bit, that we can fudge the issues, that we can use words knowing that we understand those words one way and that the other side understands those same words in a completely different way, I think by now we have enough experience to know that this method is anything but constructive. We now have two decades of experience with constructive ambiguity, and it's clear that we should really call it destructive ambiguity. If we are to move forward, what we need is constructive specificity. We need to be very clear about what we mean on the key components, on what makes peace possible, and what it means to divide the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea into, to use the words of the UN, a Jewish state and an Arab state. If we are to finally complete the partition, I believe that what is needed is for us to be very specific. Constructive specificity about the border. What does constructive specificity mean? The first issue is the line of partition. Here we have a lot of words that are being used, such as the 1967 lines, pre-1967 lines, and in Israel talk of settlement blocks and the barrier. These kinds of words are, in the context of an agreement, used to describe where the border would be. But the time has come to be very specific about what we mean about the line of partition. When we say something like the 1967 lines with swaps, it is a good headline, but it encourages both sides to continue to be unclear about where that line is. Everyone knows where the pre-1967 lines are, but once we introduce the idea of blocks and swaps, it gets muddied. The one thing that that needs to happen, both in Israel and abroad, 
And this is something I'm campaigning for, writing about and proposing that politicians take it as their agenda, is to actually put on the table a very clear delineation of Israel's final eastern border. I have published articles which list the settlements that Israel needs to include within its final eastern border and the ones that it needs to exclude. The foreign ministries of Western countries interested in the conflict should do the same thing. Put a map on the table and begin to base a policy on this map. Say, this is our working map of what we find acceptable. We know what has undermined both American and EU foreign policy in the eyes of Israelis is that by failing to make a distinction between settlements that will be part of the state of Israel in future agreement and those which will likely not be, the U.S. and EU have not helped anyone's ability to fully understand what is needed to reach a final agreement. I propose that the main blocks, except Ariel, should be part of Israel, Ariel goes too deep into the West Bank to be included. I propose that Maale Dumim and Givat Ze'ev be connected to Israel only with a road. I propose 4% of the territory of the West Bank, home to about 75% of Israeli settlers, be annexed, with compensating swaps when a peace deal is agreed. Drawing a map would finally end the ambiguity. Once foreign offices in the West have a working map, they can begin to have a policy that is based on this map much stricter on everything east of this line, but accepting of what is within the line, where building can continue, policy would become wiser and more credible. Constructive specificity about Jerusalem. The second issue is Jerusalem. People mean different things when they speak of Jerusalem, so again, we need to be very clear. Jerusalem includes A, the Jewish neighborhoods west of the 1967 lines, Having grown up there, I can assure you there is nothing holy or anything to get excited about in that part of Jerusalem. It is time for the word to be very clear that there is no question about the status of this part of Jerusalem. Moving Western embassies to this part of Jerusalem should not be a big deal. It is time for the world to end the fiction that Jerusalem is an international protectorate to be governed by the world. It was an idea at the time of partition, that because of the war that followed was never implemented. The time has come to stop toying with that fiction and to say instead, we recognize that Jerusalem west of the 1967 line is Israel. B. The Jewish neighborhoods built east of the 1967 line surrounding Jerusalem should be part of the map that would be put forward. For me, the Jewish neighborhoods are part of the 4% of the territory and 75% of the population that should be annexed to Israel, done in a way that would be minimalistic. C. The Arab villages which were not part of Jordanian East Jerusalem but were annexed to Jerusalem or included into the municipal boundaries after 1968. There is no question in my mind that these areas belong to the future Arab state. Again, The world should be very clear that they do not recognize those areas as part of Israel or Jerusalem and that they should not be part of United Jerusalem. D. Finally, there is the Old City. When people speak of Jerusalem, they immediately think of the Western Wall, Temple Mount, and Al-Aqsa Mosque. However, that amounts to about one square kilometer. Everything I've just discussed is nearly a hundred square kilometers. So we have to be specific. About the old city, we need to say 
that this is the only place where the controversy persists, so the status quo will continue with an emphasis on ensuring access to the religious places until a decision is made on the final status of that square kilometer. The status of everything else can already be specified, and we would be in a much better position to agree on the status of the old city if we do not let the ambiguity of that part spill over into the whole. Constructive specificity about refugees. And finally, I want to talk about the issue where I think there is the greatest need to be specific, and that is the refugees and the right of return. Amazingly, this is the core issue of the conflict from the Arab perspective, and they are still wedded to the maximalist vision that from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River, the state of Palestine will be free. Yet this is the area where the West is most blind. There is a term called mansplaining, where men explain away what women have said because women are incapable of explaining something themselves. So I thought of introducing the idea of Westplaining, the idea that Western countries explain away what Palestinians say. So when Palestinians say, we will return to Jaffa, or that they will never give up the right of return, that it is a personal right no leader can ever negotiate, and I have met with numerous Western diplomats whose countries donate to the authority that upholds those ideas, UNRWA, and they say to me, but the Palestinians know they are not coming back. It's just a negotiating card for future talks. This is not explaining, but Westplaining. And this is why we need to be very specific. The Palestinians and the Arab world in general, as seen in the Saudi initiative, have come to use terms such as just and agreed to explain the solution to the refugee problem. However, these words are interpreted very differently by Arabs, by the West, and by Israel. Regarding the term refugee itself, by no other standard apart from UNRWA's would the 5 million Palestinians registered as refugees today be considered refugees. 80% live west of the Jordan River and have never been displaced, or they are citizens of Jordan. We have an image of refugees as people who have just escaped from war or who have lost their homes. We don't think of them as middle-class lawyers living in Ramallah, but this is what many Palestinian refugees are. So the term itself is deeply misleading and needs to be replaced. The expression just and agreed solution to the refugee problem is understood by many in the West and in Israel to mean that the Arab Palestinians will agree to compromise. But anyone who understands the details knows that if a Palestinian leader accepts the two-state solution and recognizes Israel whilst simultaneously insisting on the demand of return, then the only two-state solution they really support is an Arab state east of the Green Line now and another Arab state west of the Green Line in the future. It means that they have yet to accept the UN partition plan of an Arab state and a Jewish state. It is important to be specific. When the Arabs say a just solution, they mean return. For them, justice is return. By contrast, the West and Israel think that just means several possible solutions, such as citizenship in Jordan or a home in Canada. Again, take the notion of agreed. Many people think it means that what Israel does not agree to does not happen. But the Palestinians think of agreed completely differently. 
It means agreeing now to what can be got. For example, Israel accepting 5,000 Palestinian refugees a year while not dropping the demand for return. Palestinians emphasize that return is a personal right and that no leader can negotiate it away. What does this mean? It means that even if something is co-signed in an agreement, the demand will always exist. They can agree on a number today, but no agreement can end the demand for return due to the way that they have construed return. Here, more than with any other issue, we need to be very specific. Israel and the West need to stop using terms like just and agreed. We have even heard officials like former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry use the words reasonable and realistic. The West and Israel think of a few thousand Palestinians returning as realistic. The Palestine papers demonstrated that the Arabs think Israel can absorb two to three million. The time has come to say, first, there has to be complete renunciation of the collective and individual Palestinian demand of a return west of the 1967 line, just as Israel needs to renounce Jewish return east of that border. It could be said that Israel as a gesture might allow 5,000 Palestinians to enter, but the numbers should be clear and it will not be a right. Second, it needs to be clear that there is no legitimate claim to return. I understand that Palestinians will continue to dream of Palestine from the river to the sea, as some Jews may continue to dream of Judea. But there is a difference between people dreaming and the world supporting those dreams. Today, Jews who dream of Judea find themselves isolated in the world, while Palestinians who demand Israel west of the 1967 lines do not. Because of the fudging of the words just, agreed, realistic, and because of the continued financial support of the West to UNRWA, the Palestinians still think that they are supported in their maximalist claims rather than isolated. Conclusion Peace will be based on the understanding that both the Jews and the Palestinians are peoples indigenous to the land. Both have a serious claim to all of it. But if both insist on the exclusive and superior claim to it, it will be war forever. Peace depends on a clear renunciation by both sides of their exclusive claims and a new understanding that the other side's existence means they will only have some of the land and the sum needs to be better defined. Even if both sides continue to have dreams, they need a far better understanding of how isolated they will become when those dreams make peace impossible. So, Anat, this is the first episode that we are recording after October 7th, uh, which seems like simultaneously yesterday and also five years ago. Uh, And I don't want to get into October 7th because you have written and spoken in so much detail about the events of that day and the political ramifications and the questions that Israeli society is asking now. I will just direct the the listener to your Twitter profile uh, where where they can read and listen and watch. And um, there's lots of links there. So that's very important. The reason why I wanted to bring this piece to be recorded today is because I was in the U.S. for the last three three or four weeks, and I was speaking at all of these campuses. 
and which was a you know a great honor and a great opportunity and especially great to see how diaspora Jews are processing these traumatic events. Uh, and the question that I kept getting over and over and over again is how do we talk to people on campus? How do we share our narrative and our lived experiences as Jews? How do we tell the story of Israel? And how do we meet people where they are so that they're less vulnerable to the anti-Israel crowd on campus? And then there were some questions that were even, how do we talk to them? How do we talk to the anti-Israel crowd? Like, how do we get in the same room together and, and hammer out peace and dialogue so that the experience is better on campus? And I couldn't help but go back to this article and think about what you say about constructive ambiguity. Because in my experience, the Jewish people love nothing more than to sit and to deliberate and to, to pontificate and to work out solutions for a more just future. But if the other side is not accepting our very core principles that really are the foundation of our beliefs in Zionism and Israel and in Jewish identity itself, then all of this is sort of wasted effort. And that's how I feel. It's a microcosm, really, of the peace process. Because Israelis have very specific guidelines as to what they will accept, meaning a Jewish state, Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, not even, you know, territorial maximalism, but in the land of Israel. And yet, as you so eloquently spell out in this piece, uh, those demands are obfuscated and blurred. And it is the ideas of people usually in the liberal camp that favor more dialogue, that puts the puts the hard, difficult issues, sweeps them under the rug for now, and then we'll get to them later. What are your thoughts on young people having these conversations about Israel? How do they avoid constructive ambiguity? And what are some things that we can do to move toward constructive specificity? So uh, someone wrote today because... At- you know, as I'm sure you know, we're still living through October 7th. We're still processing the stories. And um, someone wrote how the outside world does not understand the extent to which Israel is engulfed in grief. Uh, everyone's talking about the war, but but Israelis are still very much grieving. Um but even through the war, you already see people trying to talk about what will it look like later and what is the vision and where do we need to go? And that's important. And the United States uh, and President Joe Biden keep on talking about the importance of keeping two states and that vision alive and that we need to go back to that vision after the war. And all of that is happening once more without dealing with the thing that has made peace impossible for a century, really. Uh, So someone wrote today, he said, if there's any negotiations for peace, if anyone says, let's negotiate, he says, the Israelis should enter the room and ask quite simply, do you Palestinians understand that there's no right of return into the sovereign state of Israel? And he said, and unless the answer is a clear and resounding yes, the Israeli delegation should just leave. Because why waste the time? 
And what we did in the 90s and in the 2000s, in the first decade, is the exact opposite. We talked about everything else, the borders and the security arrangements, and even we'd go into detail about Jerusalem. And, and we kind of left this issue of refugees' return, which is really just uh, a symbol to say we don't accept a Jewish state in any borders, it was left to the end. And this is, by the way, the reason whenever you meet somebody who was involved in negotiations with the Palestinians, they always tell you that they were so close to getting an agreement. And and it is because they've spent 99% of their time talking about security arrangements and, and somehow they felt, because this is what Israel cares about, they felt that there's progress. But then when they got to the core issue and it all blew up, they were under the mistaken impression that they were actually really close when they were not at all. They were just dealing with a side issue that doesn't even pertain to the core issue. So I thought that was a very wise idea. Let's just start from the core issue, which is another way of saying constructive specificity. Let's first make sure that on the other side, we have a Palestinian leadership and people who accept the principle of partition into a Jewish and Arab state and understand that the implication is that they are not refugees, that they do not possess a right of return into the sovereign territory of Israel. When we hear yes on that, everything else is really details that could be hammered out and negotiated. And unless we hear that, don't bother. It's a waste of time. Yeah, and I... and and bringing it to the kids on the campus, it's really the same thing because we talked about how it was a yeah. microcosm. I told them, and I believe very strongly, that if the people who you are speaking to believe that Zionism is racism and that Jews are a colonial entity in the Middle East and that they don't have a right to any defensible borders, then we're, then you're done. Then you ha- that's, the, that's the first thing you need to say. And I'm wondering... Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen an explosion of the opposite. We've seen an explosion of what I like to call moral narcissism, of people who think that by bringing Israelis and Palestinians into the room together, let's say like on their podcast or interviewing, you know, this thought leader who disagrees sharply with that thought leader, it it feels like they're doing something for themselves a lot more than they're doing anything to fix the conflict or to move things forward politically. It's about themselves. It's about them feeling good. And that's what I think a lot of the West internalizes when dealing with the conflict is, and you spoke about this on Capitol Hill a couple weeks ago, about the differences between doing good and feeling good. So maybe you you can elaborate on that difference and why so many people who are invested in this conflict, because it means something for them spiritually almost, Yes. So, um, first of all, I, in many ways, was, uh, I, I, the change in my views is the result of these dialogues. I mean, first is was reality. It was seeing Arafat walk away in 2000 from an opportunity to have a state. And the fact that he walked away and followed it by the campaign of butchery that was misnamed the Second Intifada, that kind of got me questioning. But the moment that really got me to realize that the way I was thinking about the conflict and the way the Palestinians were thinking about it were 
completely unrelated, is because, you know, one of those German think tanks, organizations, do-gooders, brought together moderate uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And there I realized that the moderate Palestinians told me things like the Jewish people are not a people, you're only a religion, you have no connection to this land, uh, you don't have the right to self-determination and all these things. And I came back from those meetings and saying, okay, those are the moderates. So the way I've been thinking about this conflict is a territorial disputes over occupation and settlements in the West Bank and Gaza. That's not what they're about. So this has led me to realize that all these like dialoguing things, I mean, we're in conflict not because we misunderstand each other. You have all those people who say, if you only understood each other, and I'm like, we actually understand each other perfectly. It's incredibly condescending, really. Oh, of course. It's incredibly condescending. Oh, oh. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on. Um, I, I love my favorite phrase is that if you only saw the humanity in the other, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, we are very much aware that there are human beings on the other side. Uh, that's actually the problem. Human beings are the ones that commit the worst atrocities, as we saw, but it's something I always said. Um, we know there are human, th we just understand that they are, as a people, opposed to our very existence as a sovereign people. So this, over time, has led me to realize that there's an entire industry of people who, like you said, it's like moral narcissism. They just want to feel good about themselves. They feel that they're doing something for world peace. But they're not different from beauty queens. And I must say, right now, the UN Secretary General has been in the position of a beauty queen. Like, I want world peace. But he's not saying anything specific, even in the context now. You're I referring to Anthony Blinken? No, no, oh. the, UN, the UN Secretary oh, the UN Secretary General, General uh, Gutierrez. Like, mm -hmm. Like, he's not saying anything specific that will end the war. He's not making any specific demands. And personally, I've had it with the people who just want world peace, but are not willing to actually detail what is necessary to get there. And this is what I talk about the difference between doing good and feeling good. Feeling good, you call for world peace, you call for a ceasefire, you interview Israelis and Palestinians, you send them to dialoguing retreats. That makes you feel great. But actually doing good involves doing things that don't feel good. And most prominently uh, among them in the case of the Palestinians is actually telling Palestinians that the war of 1948 is over, that insofar that their goal in that war was for the Jewish state not to exist, that they lost. And no one wants to see this phrase. I can assure you that when I use the phrase, they lost, people nearly faint in the rooms where I'm in, like, who's going to, you know, we don't want to tell that to anybody. It's like everybody gets a trophy mentality, right? Um, so, no, they need to actually understand that so that they can move on. And and that's that's what doing good is, whether it's in parenting or governance or in making peace. Sometimes you need to say and do harsh things so that the good things can actually begin to flourish, so that Palestinians can finally move on from a, an ideology that brought them nothing but destruction and actually move to a constructive ideology that says we understand that the Jewish people are 
belong in this region. They have a history here. They have a claim to this land. And therefore, we understand that we're not going to have everything. They're not going to have everything. And based on that, we want to negotiate. Right. Completely agreed. Uh, my last question that really has a lot to do with the previous one and your, your answer is, is this war going to produce something different? Does this war have the capability to produce something different in the political diplomatic realm? Or is it going to be same old business as usual, if not worse? Because there are some people who say that's going to be worse, that there's going to be more sticks for Israel and more carrots for Palestinians, which I think you and I would both agree that that's flipped. That's reverse of what needs to happen. So is the moment that we're in right now, does it have the power to finally get people to see what you're arguing for? It has that power. The question is if that moment will be realized. And to the extent that I have hope through this darkness is that this will be a moment of real change, of clarity, of understanding. I'm definitely seeing on the personal front that more people are willing to listen to the things that I've been saying. And as you know, I've, I've been saying these things for years and it hasn't been fun. You know, I worked with Shimon Peres. I saw how great it was for him to be accepted as the man of peace. And, and you know, everyone just wants you to go around and say that you want peace. And, and I am in so many rooms where I see that if I just throw my people under the bus, if I just make it all about Israel's to blame, then I will be invited to eat salmon on National Day of Norway. But... I, I can't do that because it's just not true. But it makes me realize how substantial is the social pressure to sell out Israel, to sell out Zionism, to renounce it as the price of acceptance. Um, so the social pressure is still there, and some people are caving to it as we speak, and they will cave to it. A lot of people are actually finally moving in the other direction. They're seeing their friends for what they are. They're saying they're allies for the non-allies that they are. Um, so I have to say, this is almost personal. I have to believe that this can be a moment of transformation, both externally and both within Israel. I have to believe that Israel will emerge from it and will build better and stronger, uh, and also that the world will be willing to listen more to what is at the core of this conflict. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about it. There's there's a personal aspect to it too. People who are in this space, who have been advocating for Israel and who have been looking at the peace process with clear vision and not any illusions about what the Palestinians want, there's a personal aspect to it too in this darkness, in this horrible time, because it's like, now do you finally see? Like, it, it, it's, it's a social aspect. Now do you finally believe me? Um, and of course, the political is personal, and we're seeing evidence of that. Thank you so much, Anat. Thank you, Blake. Mashe'u mit'orer, Mashe'u mit'orer.